My wife calls that hymn the election hymn. Oh, Psalm 2, another uh, a deacon in my church always calls the Justin Trudeau song. I don't know if you know. Well, good morning. I'm amazed you're still here. Uh, incredible. Uh, Seattle is some, something else. Impressed uh, with all that. Well, today I'm going to do two more talks, and I uh, don't think I can say honestly that I'm less of a government teacher today than the other two, but uh, I think it's going to feel that way. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, this first talk, George Whitfield, and uh, and, and, so, and he's not in, in the world of political science, but affected it profoundly, as I hope to show. Um, so our last two talks uh, dealt with those who uh, moved the world and statecraft and political science, but today we come to a man uh, who never tried his hand at any of those disciplines at all. Uh, George Whitfield um, isn't known for his skillful statemanship or his powerful work of thought on uh, civil government, uh, and, and that's because he never engaged in any of that stuff. Nevertheless, uh, what Whitfield did undergirds uh, all that we discussed in our last two talks. In fact, I might say that each of these talks that, that I give, and I've said this already, are, are more foundational than the, than the one before. Uh, e each time uh, you suffer me to get up here and, and talk in front of you on a Saturday, no less. Well done. Um, uh, we're, we are getting to more foundational principles. So here's what I mean. Um, our first talk was on the Huguenots uh, and what uh, they did, and, and it is undergirded uh, really by the concept that Rutherford uh, dealt with, because you can have consent of the governed, um, but that is really built on the rule of law. Uh, you, you, for, for a government would be in terrible peril if it was uh, consenting to an antinomian people. Uh, so thus, the consent of the governed is undergirded by the rule of law. Uh, Rutherford uh, undergirds uh, the vindicii. Uh, but even the rule of law is undergirded by the topic we're going to talk about today, because the title of this talk is, is George Whitfield, um, and it is Whitfield, not Whitefield, um, by the way, but Whitfield and, and the spiritual liberty that undergirds all political liberty. I know that title's a mouthful. Um, I was trying to think of a way to shorten these things. Uh, I didn't achieve it, so there you go, you got a big one. Um, but the point is this, uh, the consent of the governed is biblical, uh, but it's based on the rule of law, and the rule of law only works uh, well when you have a regenerate people. Uh, I would rather have a rule of law than not have a rule of law, but the rule of law can be mishandled quite profoundly by people who do not, as Paul did, submit to the law with a clear conscience. I mean, think about it, uh, Israel uh, had a rule of law, um, and, and, and man, uh, that was miserable when, when Jesus was around, not because they were obeying the rule of law, but they were always trying to way, find a way to get out of it. Um, and that's where we're, we're coming to Whitfield today because he's going to teach us something profound about, about all of these concepts we're talking about. Now, the, what was uh, given to me by Ty Hatcher is the foundational principles of the United States, and, and we should understand that our political makeup is founded upon a spiritual makeup, and uh, we've ignored that to our unmaking as a people. But to see how that happened, uh, let's go to George Whitfield, who, among others, um, uh, is, is, is profound at this. And, and I want to say this, that I do think that George Whitfield undergirds a lot of the, 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 the spiritual makeup of the United States. I know I'm not saying the Puritans. Um, that, that's not because that's not true. Uh, the Puritans came over, and uh, they, uh, you know, the whole 
uh, undergird America. Uh, but, uh, and they gave us our first uh, heritage, but, but that was largely disappearing by the, the 1700s. Um, the 1700s was, a, at the beginning of the century, was a terrible time, a really dark. Uh, and, um, and, and so uh, somebody needed to bring back what had been stoked in the Reformation. Um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, in his work, Democracy in America, when he discusses why de democratic form of government is working in America and not working in Europe, um, because every time there was a democratic form of government in Europe, there were mass murders and bloody revolutions and all that. He says this, and I gave you the beginning of this quote, but I'm going to keep going. It said, Puritanism was almost as much a political theory as a religious doctrine, and no sooner had those pilgrims landed on these inhospitable shores than the immigrants turned their attention to the constitution of their society. So the pilgrims uh, made this right away, but the Puritan origins of the uh, American political heritage um, while they were patently clear to that 19th century uh, secular Catholic Frenchman, uh, nonetheless, by the 17th century, the Puritan heritage was dying in the United States. Um, and, and so 18th century George Whitfield came to America and, and saw it that way. So this man is going to bring back, in many ways, uh, the, the, the work of the gospel uh, that had started in America, and he's going to fertilize the soil and uh, prune the tree and, and bring something back. And, and it wasn't wanted here when it was started, but he went at it like a lion and made, I think, a lot of the heritage that we enjoy now. And if you, just out of curiosity, how many people know who George Whitfield is? Have you heard his name? Okay, good. good. So I'm not talking about anybody too strange. Um, so uh, let's get into this. And, and first, I'm going to just do a little section of scripture and, and uh, to set the tone, and, and let's pray for that. Now, Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for these sturdy souls that came here this morning. And bless us, that, Father, we might be encouraged by your word to know and to seek, oh, God, you. Uh, Father, thank you for those lives that have gone before us and can teach us uh, how to walk more steadily in our generation. And so, Father, open up this generation to us that we can understand our forefathers in so many things that we might more steadily put one foot in front of another in our generation. And do this, Father, by opening your word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so um, I'm going to do uh, Second uh, Timothy, um, starting chapter 2, verse 4. And uh, I'm going to give a little bit of scripture and then common comment on it. So we read this. Next page. No one, uh, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the hardworking farmer must, first, must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Uh, so Paul is talking to Timothy here. This is probably one of the last... This is probably the last thing he wrote, and, uh, and he is talking with Timothy on how to bring uh, the gospel to the work uh, he is about, uh, and he compares the work that Timothy is about to three callings that involve a lot of sweat, soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Uh, we could put it this way, to be a Christian often means reasoning in terms of battle, soldier-like. To be a Christian often means going at something doggedly, uh, sold, uh, runner-like, and to be a Christian often means you find yourself... Uh, up to your elbows 
in manure, a farmer-like. Uh, but like a farmer, you know uh, that's where things grow, in that mess and mud. So Paul is liking uh, ministering uh, to dirty, hard labor. And he's preparing Timothy's mind and our mind uh, for the good things that come from hard things. In other words, he's preparing Timothy and us on how to give that gospel out. Uh, and then he gives the gospel. Verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. So to give the gospel, you have to know the gospel. That is why Paul says the gospel. Uh, but once you know it, you, and once you know you know it, um, because uh, what he says is you will not lose it uh, through suffering for the knowing of it. And that's Paul's point. Um, He's in chains, like things got bad, and, and, but the gospel is known best when it is valued despite comfort. The gospel is lived fullest when it is treasured despite hardship. And, and notice Paul is uh, writing from jail. Uh, he won't stop preaching uh, when threatened. It's almost like he kept worshiping when the government told him not to, and then the more he gets limited, the more freely the gospel works. We've seen that, right? You, you lived through the COVID time up here, and maybe you had, as I did, and it seemed like most CRC churches, they didn't close down, and all their churches got larger afterwards. It's amazing how the gospel uh, works that way. The more we're chained, the more it goes. Verse 9, actually, I'm finishing verse 9. But the word of God is not chained, and therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So those who do the work of the gospel must strengthen themselves for the work of the gospel. But that strength does not come by digging down into yourself. That strength comes from looking up and stepping forward. And the strength comes from watching God at work and then following to keep up with him. Because he gets things done fast. Now, Paul saw God's work leaping forward even as he himself is impeded. And then he's writing a letter. He's keep working. Uh, he knew uh, the gospel of grace did not need promising conditions uh, to make its reception possible, um, so he keeps going forward cheerfully. I endure all things for the sake of the elect, he said. Now, now guard those ideas right there uh, as we look at George Whitfield, uh, because he comes in uh, just exactly in step with this verse. Uh, he started um, working at times when, when things were bad and and uh, got more and more bold in what he did, the worse it got. But let's go back to the beginning. Born in uh, England, Gloucestershire, in 1715. Uh, he was born to a widowed mother. Um, I, I don't actually remember when his dad died, but it was before his birth. Um, his mother ran a pub. His brothers worked at it. Um, but from his youngest age, uh, he wanted to be a pastor. Even as a child, he wanted to be a pastor um, or an actor, one of the two. He wanted to speak in front of people. And uh, his mom tried to make it happen, the pastor part. She didn't like the, the other part. Um, but, uh, but it was, the cost was unsustainable for her. Uh, and he writes uh, on these things, and a lot of this comes from, from his journals and letters. But um, he wrote uh, in a very, very terse verse, circumstances did not permit my mother to give me a university education. Uh, now, he's talking about age 15, which is just lovely. Um, but, you know, he's dying that at 14 he couldn't go to the university. So, it, but... It wasn't sustainable at 14, so at 15, Whitfield quit school, returned home, put on the apron, and began working in the family business of a pub. And, and you know, 
what can you say, dreams die. And so he writes, again in a terse verse, that he would, seeing the other boys go to school would daily cut me to the heart. So he's watching people get an education. I always want to tell this to my students. You don't understand. Some kids used to die. I can't go to school. But for, for Whitfield, uh, you know, uh, dreams die, but Christians know that only dead things resurrect. And God doesn't resurrect living things. Something has to die first. So it, was, it should be no surprise that two years later, Whitfield learned about um, the servitor option at Oxford. If he would go there and do the laundry and clean the rooms of the other students, uh, then his tuition would be covered. His mother asked if he wanted to do it because it would be pretty rough, and he says that he told her, with all my heart, and so Whitfield went to Oxford. And one of the things to notice about that is he begins his work as a pastor. This is the one thing he's wanted. He begins his work as a pastor, and he begins it on the bottom rung. It's just absolutely, there's no glory in how he gets his dream. He has to get up before everybody else. He has to clean up their messes um, during the day. He has to make them look admirable before they go out. And he's uh, not looking like a man to be admired. And it's not just the stigma of, oh, yes, um, the guy who cleans our rooms. It, this is um, England in the 1700s. And so there are social conventions. Uh, he's not actually allowed to introduce himself to any student who pays tuition there. Um, that's part of the servitor position. He has to stay in the shadows uh, in the back. Um, so, but, you know, he, 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 this helped him, being on that low rung, helped him probably notice other people out there that were not admirable, at least by big standards. Uh, and that was good because on campus at the time was a group named the Bible Bigots. I do want to bring that name back sometime. <laughs> uh, they were also called them, they called themselves the Holy Club. Uh, most of us know them as Methodists. Um, <laughs> now, it wasn't a denomination. Um, like it is now. Uh, it, at that time, it was just people in the Church of England who were trying to live methodically in Bible reading and Bible praying and, and fasting and free time. Um, and these, and there was good stuff in that. I mean, one of the things they noticed is what, when God set up how to approach him, he gave formats. I mean, what is Leviticus? It's a format of devotion, right? And this is how you approach me. And so they said, well, obviously formats to things. So they tried to uh, pursue methods of, getting, uh, of being faithful in, in their uh, daily um, uh, discipleship before God. But this is in the 1700s, and these Bible bigots were hated. Um, stones were often thrown at them. Uh, humiliating jokes were, were often practiced on them. But, but Whitfield, in all of this, was amazed at them. I'm just absolutely amazed. Um, yet being a servitor, he wasn't allowed to introduce himself uh, to the Bible bigots. Um, so he contented himself from his position of being a servitor of just copying them. So as much as he could tell, he would get up early and pray. He would visit prisons in his free time. That was what they tended to do. He would fast weekly. That is what um, they tended to do. And after a year of doing all of these jobs from afar, one of these Bible bigots named Charles Wesley um, noticed him. And he invited Whitfield out for breakfast, which was great because while Whitfield wasn't allowed to approach a, a tuition-paying student, they were allowed to approach him. And they went out to breakfast that morning, and it changed his world. Um, their friendship began. Now, by the way, this is the same Charles Wesley who wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, or come, thou long expected Jesus. And, and because he got an invitation from Charles Wesley, Whitfield was invited into the group. 
That was an enormous blessing to Whitfield, and he would talk about it the rest of his life and, and talk about the spiritual um, debt he owed to those men. Uh, but there was a huge problem because Whitfield, like all the Methodists um, at that time, and many still today, uh, he was using methods alone to be faithful. Um, you know, he would do things to himself like sleep without a blanket at night to beat his body, or he would deliberately fail assignments so he would not get too much pride. Um, I was, yeah, leave that one. But, um, he, he would fast, sometimes fast until he was sick. Uh, the Methodists were trying to be faithful, uh, but they were, uh, were trying at a works-based faithfulness in all they did. And Whitfield wanted to be faithful right along with them, so he just poured himself into all these problems. But like the rest of the Methodists at the time, he didn't think faithful was a matter of faith, right? which is key in all of this. But he, he didn't think it was a matter of faith. He thought it was a, a, ma a matter of method. Right? And like so many people who walk that path, uh, you're just one miserable Christian, if you go that way. Uh, for, for your faithfulness is all in the doing the Christian things and not in being Christ's. It's all about labor and sweat and not ever about um, forgiveness and being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so he could have been just a totally terrible person, except that deliverance came. God is kind. And it came. And what, what I love about Whitfield is it came through books. Uh, Whitfield was a reader. And being a person who I think I could write my own biography uh, according to the books I read, you know, sometimes the sermons I heard or something, but often books I read, I, I find this fascinating in history. It is amazing how many people uh, are changed in their course in this world by reading a book that just positioned them at, at the right time. Uh, even the Reformation, Martin Luther, one of the books that powerfully affected him before he, 95 Theses, is he read a work by Jan Hus, John Hus. Make sense? And, and he put it away because he was worried that he might actually believe the stuff in there, and he ended up doing it. But Whitfield was the same. He read. He read, no, he read Skogel's uh, The Life of God and the Heart of Man. He, he read Baxter's A Call to the Unconverted. He read Matthew Henry's commentary, the whole thing, front to back. Um, you know, thank God for books. Um, because it, you know, one of the things you do when you're in a book is you're making your mind follow someone else's mind. It's, it's, one of, it's the only time you really can get out of your head. Your, your words, or your, your, your eyes follow these words that is actually going on a, a route you've never gone before because it was in somebody else's head. And that can be dangerous depending on <laughs> whose head you're in. But, uh, but frankly, more often than not, we're our own worst enemies. And uh, we need books to, to do for us what, what you know, opening a window in a stuffy room does. Just let some fresh air in, let, let, let some stale air out. And so he read, and obviously the best book he read was the Bible. After all, that is the mind of all minds we want to get into, and the wind that blows in that open window is, is living and active. And so he writes this, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. I would pray over it. If possible, I, I began praying over every line, sometimes every word I would read. And this this proved to be meat and drink indeed for my soul because I got more true knowledge from reading that book of God in one month than I acquired by all the other writings of men. And just for, it's noteworthy that Whitfield was 17 when he wrote that. 
Then in 1736, he's 19, and Whitfield graduates, and he's ordained. Now, um, it kind of works this way now, but not exactly, uh, because in, in the Church of England, ordination um, uh, is the first time you would preach. So you could take classes on public speaking, you could talk about it with your friends, you could do it with your friends, but you never, ever, ever, ever uh, preached uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a church building until you were ordained, until you got your holy orders. So at 19, Whitfield gave his very first sermon. Um, and no one had ever heard him before, which is kind of fun because uh, he, he just blew the socks off everybody there. He was preaching in the, in the same church he had been baptized in as a baby, um, and he was doing it because of all his work up to that point in God's kindness uh, with a clarity on what being Christ's meant. And so what came from that young preacher that day absolutely startled his home church. The vicar told him afterwards, um, you drove 15 men mad in that sermon, and then said, I, I do wish that madness might not be forgotten by next Sunday. And, the, and it continued. Then a friend asked him to cover his, his absence in London, and so he, 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 he did that thing for a while. And, and this was Whitfield's early assignments. He, he filled vacant pulpits when the need arose. Bustled about all of London and, and, and towns in the south. And, and, and in this way, um, more people heard him than would have otherwise. His influence was really unreal. So he's ordained at 19. By 20, nine of his sermons were published, and none of it was self-publication. People just grabbing his sermons and turning them into books. Really, he, he, there has not been anything quite like George Whitfield in the history of the church, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, but, but churches began to ask him to come and preach uh, any day, not just on Sunday, but any day. Uh, and he writes in his journal this, now, this is at age 20. I preached nine times this week, which I always think is amazing. There's seven days a week. but <laughs> Preached nine times this week. I expounded scripture 18 other times. I think that means Bible studies. I am every moment being employed from morning till night. There is no end of people coming to me, and they seem more and more desirous to be fed the sincere milk of the word. And it was this just unreal, absolutely unreal uh, popularity uh, that began going for his sermons that, that caused Whitfield to do what that incident he is most famous for. Because one, church, one Sunday uh, at a church in London, the church was overfilled. There was standing room only. Uh, and, uh, and, and they opened the windows for people to stand at the windows and listen in. And when the service ended, Whitfield heard that people had been standing so thick outside the windows that they had been going right into the street and traffic had to be put around them. Um, all just to hear his sermon and standing there, mind you. And he writes this in his journal, this put me first upon thinking about preaching outdoors. But I mentioned this to a friend and they took me as mad. They took it as a mad notion. You know, we tend to think that, that you know, outdoor preaching is normal revival style. We forget it has a beginning. Right? There, there is no revival style at this time because it hasn't been made yet. Uh, sure, sure, during the Reformation, churches uh, would kick people out, but, but often when they were kicked out of a church, they would just go in somewhere else and start preaching. Right? Um, but Whitfield uh, himself wanted to be inside, but he was in an age when there was less space than there were people that wanted to hear. And this is also, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but this is also the Industrial Revolution, which really did change things uh, profoundly for churches, because it's the first time where cities are being made around factories, and no one was, doing, was planning on putting churches in those towns. There's just not churches in some places. 
And so it began uh, that, that Whitfield first traveled to a town called Kingswood. It was a mining town, a town where no church had ever been built. Um, and it was the Lord's Day. Now, j just put yourself in historical perspective. You know, you've, you've, you've got medieval Europe, you've got the Reformation growing from that, and there is no town without churches until the Industrial Revolution comes on the scene, and these are the first towns that don't have churches in it, you know, in maybe a thousand years, really, just since barbarians were crashing through the, the Roman Empire. So this is a new thing, and no one knew what to do with it. They would, there would be petitions in Parliament to build churches in these towns, um, but there were people living there until that happened. And so um, uh, this is why uh, Whitfield went to Kingswood, a mining town with no church in it. It had been in Parliament to build a church there, and he wasn't going to wait for it. So he goes out in his full clerical robes. He went out into a coal field, and he preached. Um, no one had ever seen anything like it. This is the beginning of that. And, and that, that day, 200 people uh, came. This is the whole town. Uh, then that Wednesday, he preached again. 2,000 came. And then on Friday, 4,000 came. And the next Sunday, so this is one week, he writes in his journal, at a moderate computation, there were 10,000 people that day. The trees and the hedges were full of them. I mean, this is the beginning of open-air preaching. And, this is, and it begins during the Industrial Revolution because this bursts onto, onto the world scene. And all these towns are built around factories, uh, you know, and not around churches. It's a totally architectural feat, you know. Nowadays, we tend to build cities around, well, around shopping malls and things, you know. But you can tell, like, the age of, of towns by what's at the center of them. It's, it's interesting, you know. And, and, and so there's this time when these towns have no churches in it, and so God makes this man just rush onto the scene who, who like, almost no one in the history of the church just was able to draw a crowd. And, and, and obviously this is God's wonderful providence because this man who has this ability to draw a crowd begins drawing them in places where there are no church buildings. And, and, and the crowds came. But one of the other patterns we see in history is that always when blessings come, opposition comes too. Now Whitfield's journal entries contain things like this. Um, I love this one. He writes, I was honored today with having a few stones thrown at me, rotten eggs, and a piece of dead cat. <laughs> you know, some, some came to hear the gospel, but some came to shout insults at him. Um, later, uh, when his popularity kept growing, some would bring trumpets to his open-air preaching and just blow trumpets while he was there, uh, just stop people from hearing. And, and then later, it even got more physical. People would try and accost him uh, while he was up there. He, he did uh, several attempts on his life. And by the way, all of this terrible treatment wasn't just unbelievers. Um, some of this was, was believers. Some of this were his dear friends. Uh, John Wesley, uh, the brother of Charles Wesley, uh, began preaching against Whitfield um, because Whitfield believed in the sovereignty of God and the sovereign election of individuals, and Wesley thought that was heretical. Uh, for the, furthermore, Whitfield didn't believe in the doctrine of sinless perfectionism, which John Wesley did believe in. Um, Whitfield didn't say you can get to a point where you don't sin, and John Wesley did. And, and Whitfield was a rare thing in the history of the church. Uh, he was a Calvinistic Methodist. There's not many of those. Um, one other famous one you might know, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But, um, but uh, John Wesley, who's credited with starting Methodism, is actually reported to have told his congregation, let Whitfield's name perish. And remember that. 
Uh, Whitfield began preaching only uh, to see his own Methodist friends and brethren start putting their fingers in their ear and running out when he would start talking. And he learned later that John Wesley had instructed his people to do this in order to not hear Whitfield's lies. Now, it's amazing all that's going on, and Whitfield uh, took none of it personally. In fact, he, he, he loved Wesley and often wrote letters to him telling him how, how much he meant to him. And since God had sovereignly decided to first use Wesley to bless him, I think there's a little knife in that statement. But, um, once he was asked by a soul that, that supported him, um, who was outraged at Wesley's actions, uh, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? Uh, to which Whitfield famously replied, no, we won't see him in heaven, for he will be so close to the throne of God, and we will be so far back that we won't see him at all. I mean, just think about the humility that can say that while all this is going on. I mean, and, and some of that, that is because, some of that just amazing ability to stand in all of this with that position to his soul, because Whitfield was a man singularly concerned with his popularity. And what I mean by that is he thought his popularity was the greatest danger to him there was. I mean, constantly worried about his popularity. He, he, he would often talk about it as it, you know, the Holy Spirit each day taking him out into the desert to tempt him, and the temptation was his popularity. He's just constantly saying, don't buy them, don't believe them. You know, Jesus didn't commit himself to any man because he knew it was in man. Don't buy this. Um, he wrote uh, in one entry, the people are growing too, too fond of me. And famously, he began taking upon his lips uh, the thing that John Wesley had said among him, and he began preaching himself, let the name of Whitfield perish. In two different sermons, he preaches it, let, let my name perish. And that accounts in part for why Whitfield decided in the end to leave uh, England and, and to become a missionary to the colony of Georgia. Now, Georgia, if you remember, if you didn't know, now you'll know, uh, it wasn't started by pilgrims or Puritans. Uh, Georgia was founded in 1733. That's six years before George Whitfield went. Uh, and it was started as a penal colony for criminals, mainly um, uh, crimes having to do with debt. But, you know, Georgia was America's Australia, right? Send, send them away. Get them out of here. Um, so Whitfield looked to Georgia um, a bit like he looked to uh, his, his weekday ministry at the jail cell. This would be a giant, you know, continent-sized prison ministry he was going to, going to America. And, and that's why he went. He, 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 and, and that's why he returned seven times. He was getting out of Dodge. Things were too dangerous for him. Dangerous not because of the opposition he was getting, but because of the popularity he was getting in England. And so he, he went to America, and as he was there, he began noticing that the faith of the children of the Puritans uh, was chilling and dying in America. And so he began visiting the colonies even beyond Georgia to save what was remained, or to, as it says in Revelations, to, to keep, um, to, to keep what, what remains. And again, like in England, uh, so in America, vast crowds began forming to hear him. In one sermon in Massachusetts, Whitfield drew more listeners than the entire city's population, which means they had to come from other places. In a sermon in Georgia, the largest crowd recorded in American history up to that point um, well, is recorded. And in a sermon in Pennsylvania, his congregation listened to his supernaturally potent voice. I mean, just uh, there's actually a study you can find online about how loud he must have spoken by some of these reports. But, but in, in Pennsylvania, it is reported that you could hear him a dozen city blocks away. Um, and and no, not everybody could see him, but they could all hear him. I mean, he really did have quite a voice. 
the great speakers of his days were all amazed by it. Benjamin Franklin um, disbelieved all the reports of Whitfield that were coming from England. And then when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, um, being Benjamin Franklin, he, he, during one of the sermons, he just decided to perform a scientific test. And he began walking away uh, from the front where Whitfield was speaking um, and walked through town until he couldn't hear him anymore. And in, in that sermon, he walked three city blocks away and estimated that, that, that Whitfield's could be heard 26,000 um, meters square. You know, just, that's incredible. I mean, not, and not only could this man's voice just carry supernaturally, it, he also spoke absolutely pleasantly in all of it. Uh, the actor at the time, David Garrick, said, oh, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. <laughs> I mean, Benjamin Franklin agreed, saying, he can br bring men to tears merely by pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> So they all came, you know, white, black, male, female, farmers, city folk, non-educated, highly educated, Baptists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, they were all coming to hear him and hear his message of justification of sinners through the blood of Christ, through the new birth of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And the message was grabbing America, grabbing the children of the Puritans. George Washington was eight the first time he heard Whitfield. And later, uh, George Washington writes, upon his lips, the gospel appears even to the coarsest of men as sweet and as true as, in fact, it is. And Patrick Henry, often called the America's first great orator, uh, he later gave us America's famous speech, give me liberty, give me death, uh, grew up listening to Whitfield sermons. And he said, would that every bearer of God's glad tidings be as fit a vessel of grace as Mr. Whitfield was. Benjamin Franklin, who never believed, not to the end, became Whitfield's American publisher, and, and they had a great friendship. Uh, we call these names, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Patrick Henry, we call them founding fathers, but it seems again and again that George Whitfield was our founding father's spiritual father. More than a few articles and books can, you can find can show how George Whitfield's preaching of Christian Liberty made it possible for the colonies to conceive and believe in a political liberty that would form this country. After all, we forget a number of things that happened at the time. But it was Whitfield whose work in Parliament killed that British bill that would have put all colonial churches under a bishop in England. That was actually Whitfield's work back in England. Or we forget that as an old man, it was Whitfield who walked Benjamin Franklin to Parliament's doors um, as he was going to repeal the Stamp Act, you know, the beginning of the war, uh, the American War for Independence. I mean, Whitfield was a constant supporter of the colonialists' appeal to King George. And Whitfield worked tirelessly for this country, but, but not in, ever in the area of politics, always from the pulpit and from the field. And he worked to the end um, in all of this. Uh, on Whitfield's seventh voyage to America, uh, he started in Georgia, but this time he wanted to go all the way, well, he was planning on first going to New York, but then he decided to go all the way up to, 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 to Canada. He it was further than he had ever gone, and, and, uh, and he never made it. Um, and there, there should be a note on that he never made it. This is one of the most fascinating things I think about George Whitfield. Uh, when the Continental Congress that would later write the Declaration of Independence and, and all of those, uh, when it made the Continental Congress, it invited all British colonies in North America. We tend to say thir there were 13 
original colonies. No, there were a lot more colonies, uh, all the way from Jamaica, that was a colony invited, all the way up to Nova Scotia, uh, was invited. Um, it's only 13 that accepted the invitation. It's not that there were 13 colonies. Um, but the 13 that accepted the invitation to the Continental Congress are the 13 colonies that Whitfield ever made it to. And none of the ones he didn't make it to ever came to the Continental Congress. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. But it was on this trip in 1770 that, that, um, that Whitfield made it only as north as New Hampshire. And you're like, but wasn't Maine a colony? Well, it wasn't. It was actually part of Massachusetts at the time. Um, the, the northernmost colony that uh, went to the Continental Congress was um, New Hampshire. Um, but while he was in New Hampshire, uh, Whitfield um, took sick and he couldn't go on. Uh, so he decided to go back south and rest up, but as he was journeying south, his reputation preceded him, and in Exeter, Massachusetts, which still has a stone uh, there to be seen, uh, they heard that he was coming uh, through town, and they built a stage for him before he got there, and then begged him when he came through town, please preach for us, please preach for us. I mean, he wasn't well, and he shouldn't have done it, but he agreed. An elderly gentleman, seeing Whitfield approach the podium, said, sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. True, sir, Whitfield replied, and then praying out loud, he said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but I'm not weary of it. If I have not finished my course, let me go and speak once more for thee. I think about that phrase a lot. I like it. Whitfield went up on stage, a bit like, you know, I am here, though I think it was taller. And he didn't say anything when he got there, and that was new. You know, he was tired. He stood there, in fact, for several minutes in silence, unable to speak, and when the crowd started to get restless, he said, I will wait for the gracious assistance of God. And then they just waited together. And then it came. Uh, Whitfield delivered what has been titled his greatest sermon uh, that day. Uh, you can still find it online. It's not titled, but it's two hours long, uh, which is uh, worth noting. And it begins uh, with those beautiful words, perhaps you've heard them before. Works? Works? A man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. And he went off to just declare his life's work, which just happened to be the gospel. And that sermon, two hours, exhausted him. After it was over, he went to the local pastor's house in Exeter to rest. At supper time, he didn't eat supper, he excused himself to go to bed, but not much later than that, a knock came at his door, and it was opened, and a, a group was outside, and they had been rushing to Exeter to hear his sermon that day, but had missed it, and so they begged him to, to repeat it. <laughs> and he should have slept, um, but being Whitfield, he agreed, so he came down the stairs, um, uh, about halfway, a candle in his hand, um, and then he preached, and preached until the candle burned down all the way to the stump and went out, and then he excused himself and went back to his room. At 2 a.m. that morning he woke, and he was unable to catch his breath, and he said, it's just, I just need a good pulpit sweat tomorrow. That will give me relief. And his traveling companion said, Mr. Whitfield, I do wish you would not preach so much. Whitfield responded with an iconic phrase, you know, uh, I think everybody should know it if they don't, but he said, I would rather wear out than rust out. <laughs> what do you choose, Dave? <laughs> what do I choose? <laughs> you know, it would be a 
used pair of shoes. They're all beat up and worn out and threadbare, and our sole is flapping because the stitching is coming out. Or you know, want to be a nice pair of good-looking dress shoes that are elegant but uncomfortable and kept in good order in the dark of the closet. Right? You want to be one of those uh, lives that is a book that's all dog-eared, ruffled, and ugly until your binding finally just gives up the ghost and falls out. Or do you want to be one of those beautiful, urbane, leather-bound volumes that uh, is tastefully looking on a shelf, good at catching dust, but not readers. You know, in 2 Timothy, not in the section that I read today, but a little later, Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, that's chapter 4, verse 6. And I think that is the inspiration for Whitfield's iconic statement. And even if it's not the conscious source, it, it definitely is the exact same sentiment. Go until you've got nothing left. And, and that's what Whitfield did um, incredibly. He, he died that night. Uh, by, by 7 that morning, he, he ended his struggle and he entered into the presence of his master. And I always tend to think that that candle he had in his hand um, was a nice symbol of his life. It just burnt down to the bottom and went out. Um, but... The amazing thing about Whitfield is he left a spiritual legacy that, that we have built on. Uh, not only that, and, and more importantly, uh, after him, the churches took up his work, um, and, and from Whitfield, they began building up the men and the women of the colonies to, onto eternal life. But more approximately to our issue here, Whitfield um, began building a national consciousness um, in America by building a spiritual consciousness of, of what these children and grandchildren were doing um, in this colony, why their, their forefathers had come. I mean, four years after his death, just four years after his death, it was the pulpits of the country uh, that began calling men to battle um, in, in the war for independence. And, and, and don't forget, it, uh, the war for independence was largely preached into existence. Right, from the pulpits. It, it wasn't started in city halls. It was started in pulpits. Uh, usually, there would be big uh, controversial sermons to commemorate the beheading of Charles I and things like that. You know, remember what we think of tyrants from the pulpit. So, so if Dave ever gives a political sermon, just know it's truly Puritan. Well then. But, um, but, but not only did, he, did, did, what, did the War for Independence, not only was it, was, was it created from the pulpits, it was also created with restraint and, and with an object in view, the glory of God and, and the good of your neighbor. Um, it, it, it was called uh, to order and it was called to lawful restraint. After all, just a few years later, 12 in fact, France would go to fight against a political tyrant too, uh, but that revolution ended in bloody mayhem and the reign of terror. You know, until in France, people were begging for an autocrat to come and rule and reign over them, and that's Napoleon. And Napoleon would, would take that political tyranny, and then he would just export that revolutionary, revolutionary spirit to all the rest of Europe, this giant political monstrosity uh, that still bears fruit in Europe. As a, as a side story, when, when I was in France, um, they, they still have uh, street celebrations on Bastille Day and, and local... Um, Professors are invited to come say the glories of the French Revolution. This was in 2000, 2001. And uh, uh, one of the very few reformed um, professors I knew in France, he might have actually been the only one, he was a history professor there, um, 
Jean-Marc Dumas. He, he was invited um, the year I was there to come speak about the glories of the French Revolution, and he just denounced it in front of the town I was in. And this one female professor got up and said, I, you must say one good thing about the French Revolution. And he said, Madame, the metric system. <laughs> but America was so different than France. Um, it was a battle against tyrants, uh, just the same. And, and, but the answer of why it was so different, why it is absolutely so different, is that America had Whitfield, right? right? Preparing the people of the Lord. Uh, their, their understanding of gospel liberty made a push for political liberty that was not selfish or frenzied. They were able to submit to law, to submit to order, uh, submit to reason. They were not idolizing reason and so slaying the world with doubts. So, so let me give a few reasons, uh, therefore, on, on what Whitfield teaches us. And I'm going to make this um, personal for you and probably more so for, for uh, pastors and elders in the room. Uh, but, but there's something for all of us in this. And, and it might not sound, it might sound like I've stepped out of my lane and I'm not just talking about our, our, our political um, concepts, but, but actually going into a more pastoral area. But there is a reason for that. In, in the verse I started with, Paul tells Timothy to conceive of himself, remember the things, as both a fighter and a farmer. And I want to just do a really corny pastoral thing and just put those together and, and just give you a nice little memorable uh, mnemonic on that. I think he does that because the fight is fertile. The fight is fertile. Uh, by the 1700s, uh, the world was a dark place in the West. Uh, put your history in perspective. The Reformation started, well, really in the 1500s. Love of Christ was being presented in Scripture and it erupted on the scenes. Heroes of the faith marched out into the church. This is uh, a later Luther, Calvin, Knox, Viret, each lighting this fire of faith in Europe. Then go a century later, it's the 1600s, and that's where we started our talks, and Europe was aflame with gospel light, um, and this is why we really start, stop talking about individuals and we start talking about groups in the 1600s. There's the Puritans and the Huguenots and the Covenanters and the Pilgrims. It becomes groups because they're making uh, body politics. And then you get to the 1700s, and the spirit of the Reformation is going, going, almost gone. I mean, many were giving up the faith. Uh, most national leaders already had. Uh, as Queen Caroline was dying in England, um, the prime minister asked the royal family to call a priest, and they didn't want to do it. And he responded, well, let the farce be played, or the good, wise fools will call us atheists if we don't. There's nothing there in the highest levels. Lady Montague, who was a believer, quipped that Parliament was, in her age, this is the early 1700s, she said, trying to take the knot out of the commandments and put it in the creed. I mean, do you get that? They were trying to, thou shalt not murder, take the knot out of there, thou shalt murder, and then put it in the creed, I do not believe in God the Father Almighty. I mean, faith was gone, and as faith went, so went the morals. The early 1700s was absolutely vicious. Uh, the number one ex uh, form of, of entertainment was public executions. Uh, bookies, you can find, his uh, you can find uh, that, that uh, bookie ledgers from the time period w had dedicated betting on how many times the condemned would kick while he hung there on the rope. 
I mean, city corners sprouted bear baiting. Do you know what bear baiting is? I mean, you can go up and pay someone for money and take a stick and whack a bear a few times you know, on your way home to your wife. I mean, this was, this was normal entertainment in the 1700s. This was the period. You know, you take the knot out of the commandments and you put it in the creed. And that's what the 1700s looked like at, 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 as they were beginning. And they ended gloriously. I mean, what, what's the birth of our country? 1776. They ended well, but they began monstrously. And, and put that down, from, from Lutheran into the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, it's dead. And now look at us, we're, we're beginning the 2000s, and just go back. It almost follows the same pattern. I mean, you just said, the 1700s, great. 1800s, even better, starts working into national bodies. 1900s, well, that's when we start losing everything. And now here we are, at the beginning of the 2000s. Do we look much different in this time period? Here we are standing at the beginning of a new century like they were then, and the faith of the earlier generation seems to have gone out of our nation like it did for them. It's like, you know, we left the milk of our heritage out on the counter overnight and didn't put it away, and we rose and we found it, well, it smells and it's curdled. I mean, it wasn't that long ago uh, that, that every president and plaintiff had to swear an oath on the Bible. I mean, we, we have our first representative in office who swore on the Quran. That, that's new. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that most cities shut down on Sundays to allow families to go to church. You might forget that it was a sports team. That well, Now they're the Oakland A's, boo. But they were the first, the first uh, team to, to ever play on Sundays. And that began all the change. And, and it was during the Great Depression because we were trying to stoke the economy. It wasn't that long ago that church attendance was higher in every city than non-attendance. And all the editorials you find in the newspaper is, how do we get those last remaining people to church on Sundays? We've, we've flipped it. I mean, we stand at the beginning of a century that looks spiritually dark and morally foreboding, as did the 1700s. And in some places, uh, at that time, the faith didn't survive. I lived in France. It didn't survive there. When I lived in France, there was a statement among the missionaries you could find there that said, well, France is, um, is a missionary graveyard. It used to be said of going to Africa, they all said it of going to France, because the French are so hard-hearted and comfortable that there are no convictions there. Every missionary I met when I lived in France was to North Africa. There was one missionary that wasn't, he was to American servicemen in France. No, no missionaries to France because it was, because these churches there eke out uh, the most stellarly insignificant existence. It just barely goes. But, but why did the faith survive here and not there, when both countries fought tyranny within 12 years of each other? And the answer is that God raised up someone like George Whitfield. No one preached the gospel in France before the revolution, but someone preached the gospel to the colonies before ours. Now, that man who preached it was incredible, but he was miserable in the doing of it. I really feel like I robbed you uh, if you want to read about any of the people I speak about, I would do Whitfield. He's just the most exciting to read about of all the people. But um, and his, the story, the anecdotes of what he went through are just absolutely incredible. Uh, but, but it was miserable. He was poorly treated from, from one side of his ministry to the other by people outside the church, by people inside the church. It was a constant, constant, constant fight for him, and he was always dirty from it. But it turns out that that fight he did his whole life uh, was absolutely fertile for everyone that heard it. Absolutely. 
All that miseries he went through made a heritage. And that political liberty uh, that, he, that we have is really what came from the spiritual liberty that he gave. And that was Whitfield's gift. And, and when we forget these things, well, we're not prepped for our century. Again, I started this all by saying, look back at your heritage. Well, this is one of the heritages. Why, do, why did politics work in America? Right? There is a spiritual basis for that. The gospel of grace does not need promising conditions to make its reception possible or its gifts effectual. Really, all it takes is someone with some glad courage who, like a soldier, is willing to you know, uh, get shot at and, and, like a farmer, is willing to roll up their sleeves and get into the mud. But we need to conceive of ourselves as both fighters and farmers and see that that fight is often the farming that we need. And the second thing, point out, uh, Paul, uh, in our verse today, is chained up, and for political reasons, um, but, but he's chained up, and then that's when he starts uh, saying loudly, but the gospel is not chained, and that's because he starts seeing the gospel is not chained. And the point I want to make on this is that the gospel works powerfully in the middle of political evil, not by being political, but by being the gospel. The gospel works powerfully in the middle of political evil by not being political, but by being the gospel. Uh, George Whitfield, which I would claim gave us our spiritual heritage, never actually dealt uh, with, with, with politics himself. He was always going after men's souls, always going after the liberty they needed in Christ. I mean, without that spiritual liberty, uh, you couldn't have the political liberty that followed. And there's a point in that. It's not that, that George Whitfield was unconcerned. I told you he walked Benjamin Franklin to Parliament to help repeal the Stamp Act. But what Whitfield saw is that the great battle is not actually in Washington or in Olympia or in his time in, in Parliament. Uh, the great battle is always in the hearts of men and women. And it's the battle that is often fought by the pastor in his pulpit or with their eyes on Whitfield and preaching in places without pulpits too. You know, all you want for America, all I want for America, is found in the gospel. You have to build with gospel-rich people. Uh, when my students and I read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, there are a number of things I want them to notice, and so we rush through sections, and we skip sections, and we go really slow on some sections, and I want them to meditate on them for a while. One of the places I always want them to spend a really long time on is Book 2, Chapter 5, where de Tocqueville explains that democracy in America is working because religion in America is vibrant. And he says this, he goes on to note that when religion dies, um, tyrants always take over, which I think is a fascinating section. And, and, uh, and remember, he's thinking of Napoleon while he writes this. Uh, um, and so he's this Frenchman in America trying to understand the differences between democracy in France, which is a horrible affair, and democracy in America, which just seems to be lively. And why does France kill everybody when they try and become uh, democratic and then make a Napoleon that, that is just imperial? And why didn't America do that? And he says this, and it's a long section, but I want to read it to you. So I'm going to sit in my classroom for a minute. But When a nation's religion is destroyed, he writes... Doubt takes grip upon the highest areas of men's intelligence, and it paralyzes all other areas. This man begin, begins putting up poor defenses for the opinions he has, or he begins to abandon them. And he beats a cowardly retreat into 
in the end, not thinking at all. And such a state cannot fail to weaken the soul, to strip the forces of the will, and to shape uh, citizens for slavery. Not only do the people allow their freedom to be taken from them at such a point, but they often want to give it up. See, when the authority in religious matters no longer exists any more uh, than it does in political matters, men soon take fright at the sight of their boundless independence. This constant upheaval in everything brings disquiet and exhaustion, and everything in the domain of their intelligence is always shifting, and they crave, at least for some firm, stable state out there in the material world. Being unable to recover their ancient beliefs, they seek out until they find someone to rule over them. I mean, do you see what he's saying? It's absolutely profound. When a people loses its faith, he says they stop thinking, they look to get rid of their freedom because the world inside has so much freedom. I mean, when Nietzsche, uh, no, no, Dostoevsky said, when God is dead, all things are possible. They're so uh, worried about how much freedom they have that they begin looking out there in the world for someone to control them. Or we could often say things like this, uh, you know, well, actually, let me say it this way. Uh, there's a statement that uh, statism is there because the state is always looking to be God. Um, I think actually de Tocqueville is being much wiser than that. He's saying that, that, uh, that people are actually begging for a God when they give up God. I need a God somewhere. Uh, they're looking and searching for one because they believe the world doesn't have a God. And, and that's terrible. They need someone to give them order. In other words, as soon as people lose their faith, they go, they go shopping for political tyranny. That's the consequence, says de Tocqueville. And he watched it in France. And this is why the opposite is also true, and this is the point of what I want us to see. Do you want political liberty? Then it starts by preaching the gospel. Do you want political liberty? Then it starts with spiritual liberty. Teach people the gospel. The gospel is the basis of all our intellectual, political wealth. Of course, it's the wealth of eternal life, of glory before the face of God. Um, but the topic I was given is it's also the basis of just sane politics. So the need of the moment, believe it or not, is to preach the gospel. The need of the moment is to go to churches where the gospel is preached. The need of the moment is for pastors and, and well, and you too, if you're feeling uh, feisty, uh, you know, to get out there in the world and Say, thus says the Lord, and then get some dead cat thrown at you. The gospel works powerfully amidst political evils by being the gospel. That's how it works. All right, let's pray. Now, Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Father, thank you for these lives. And Father, I pray that you would impress lives upon us like George Whitfield, that we would see what the true need of our moment is. Father, thank you for showing us that this goes back, oh, to the very beginning. Father, thank you for Paul's words to us. Thank you for speaking to us through those things. And help us see our job of fighting, of running, and of farming. In Jesus' name, amen.